Good morning. Everybody uh, hear me okay? Uh, I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Monetary Studies and a Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute. I'm pleased to have you here to join us today for the launch of uh, Zhang Wei Ying's uh, new book, The Logic of the Market, An Insider's View of Chinese Economic Reform. We're also pleased to have as our discussants two distinguished scholars, uh, David Dollar from the Brookings Institution and our own visiting uh, fellow here, Sha uh, Yutliang. Cato's been long involved in China. Uh, we ran a big conference in China way back in 1988 uh, when the reforms were just getting into gear. Of course, they were delayed substantially the next year with Tiananmen. Uh, Milton Friedman was with us in 1988, and uh, he met with uh, Zhao Ziyang uh, during his, his visit to China. And uh, Milton would be very pleased with this book. Uh, in fact, he'd probably be astonished at the level of insights uh, by a Chinese economist uh, since uh, the uh, liberalization of China's uh, economy. So uh, congratulations on, a, uh, on a, a fine book. It was first published uh, in 2010 in China, in Chinese, this is the first English translation. And I wish the translator were here uh, because that's a yeoman's job to translate a book like this. And uh, the translator is uh, Matthew Dale. So if Matthew's listening, congratulations uh, to him. I'd like to thank uh, John Samples, who's the director of the Cato University Press. He's the one that really instigated this and uh, followed through on it. So congratulations uh, to John as well. The logic of the market is really the logic of a free price system. Uh, it's a logic of voluntary exchange and mutual gains from free trade. And these ideas occur throughout the book. They're simple but powerful ideas. And it's a logic of the importance of institutions in shaping incentives and behavior, especially the importance of private property rights that make decision makers responsible for their actions. Zhang early on recognized the social value of private for-profit enterprises. He was a pioneer, in fact, in moving from central planning to a market price system. In 1984, he advocated a legal dual price system to ease the transition to a competitive market system. Uh, he also recognized the importance of sanctioning bottom-up or spontaneous reform through legal changes. Thus, he helped transform the existing dual-track price system, which was spontaneous, uh, into a legally sanctioned system by law, from which evolved a unified price system and the market price system that China has today. No system is perfect, but China, most of the prices in China are free to move by market forces, which was totally uh, not the case during central planning where the state set the prices. Zhang's fundamental interest is, however, in the balance between state and market and the need to limit state power while expanding the scope of economic and personal freedom. He recognizes that entrepreneurship requires private property broadly conceived. That is, it requires freedom to criticize and freedom to fail, along with the right to capture rewards for creating new wealth and new ventures. 
China, of course, has taken strong steps towards economic freedom since 1978, but still has a long way to go towards personal freedom. His book is a valuable contribution to our understanding of China's march toward the market and the reforms that remain to widen the range of choices open to the Chinese people and thus create new wealth. We should congratulate Professor Zhang for his courage to speak out against the ills that continue to plague China while recognizing the significant benefits of China's reform movement since 1978. It's an appropriate venue today, the Hayek Auditorium, uh, for Professor Zhang to launch his book here. He is a, a student of Hayek in a sense. He's read Hayek, he understands Hayek. And I'd like to uh, quote something that uh, he wrote. And I quote, I agree with Hayek, who argued that a society in which wealth is the way to social status is better than a society in which social status is the way to wealth. Wealth should not be created in the process of attaining power or once one has attained power. But this is what happens in China. Please help me welcome Wei Ying Zhang. Uh, thank you, Dean. It's a great honor for me uh, to be here, uh, particularly um, my book published by Cato Institute. And uh, I'm very excited, actually, uh, for my ideas to be introduced to American audience. Uh, in following, I just gave a very brief uh, 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 talking about this book. Uh, I got logic of market uh, China's Chinese experience. Actually, in this book, my purposes are not only to analyze how China has marketized its economy, how China will have to do in future, but also I try to develop some new concepts and refine some uh, old concepts about uh, market economy. Let me start with the uh, nature of human being. A uh, human being pursue happiness, east, west, ancient, and current. Uh, no matter how do you define happiness, but there are two ways to pursue happiness. One is that you pursue your happiness by sacrifice others' happiness. I call it the logic of robbery. Second one is uh, you pursue your happiness by making other people happy first. I call it the logic of market. But, so by the logic of robbery, that is, uh, you really do not create new wealth, new value. Actually, you may destroy wealth, but by logic of market, you must create new value. So competition in the market, actually competition to create values for other people. Now, our human history actually has been uh, uh, worked with these two logics. But for a long, long time, uh, uh, before uh, 19th century, the logic of the robbery was dominant. Only in past 200 years, the logic of market began to dominate. That is why our human being, particularly in the West country, achieved so big uh, progress. We improved our life. 
uh, quite a lot. Certainly, even today, we still had a lot of uh, logical robberies uh, existing with the logical market. We need to reduce the logical uh, robberies power uh, to have more power of logical market. That is why everywhere we need reform. Oh, why it work? Sorry. And anyways, okay. Uh, forward. Oh, oh, okay. So uh, based on this uh, concept, I ha I think there are some misunderstandings about market. For a long time, even among economics, we thought the market is the mechanism for resources allocation. That is not. Uh, I think not very good uh, definition. I think market actually is the best mechanism for human beings to cooperate with each other. And also, I think there is some uh, misunderstanding about the market and firm. According to Ronald Coase, firm is something substitute for market. But in my view, firm is actually operational ways of market. This without firm. We cannot have real market system. And also, this has application to antitrust. Uh, in antitrust law, we know when some firm become big and dominant market, we say they enjoy some monopoly power. So we need to take measures to get that. I think that is wrong. Actually, without a big firm, it's impossible for human beings to cooperate. Because in market economy, we need to trust each other. If there are only small firms there, it's impossible to monitor each firm and individual's actions. So it is a big firm, very, very important for market. Also, I think in our traditional economics, only prices play roles. We ignore the very important role of entrepreneurs. And in my view, without entrepreneurs, we cannot have real efficient market. We may have market, but no real efficient market economy. And also some misunderstanding about the moral, morality, and market. I think the market is the most moral system of human being created. I also think there are a lot of uh, or uh, 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 misunderstandings in market theory. Actually, we mistake feeling of market theory is the feeling of market. I think that is quite different. In our textbook, we know like uh, no play, uh, power, or externality, asymmetric inflation, all create market failure. But the market really does not work uh, like that with this kind of things or be failure. A market is the best way to solve this problem, particularly solve asymmetric information uh, uh, problem. Rather than because there is a market, uh, uh, asymmetric inflation, we have market failure. Now come to a uh, uh, Chinese case. Actually, what China has achieved in past three decades, that is really economic progress, people's living and standing improvement. Why we achieved this? I think because China has went through uh, 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 from the logic of robbery to the logic of market. Actually, plenty economy operates according to the logic of robbery. The planning economy can be defined as, I define as a 
position-based economy. That is, uh, everyone's interests, uh, rights are defined according to government hierarchical position. You have, if you have a higher position in government, you can enjoy more rights, more interests. So when people pursue companies within planning economy, first, they need to enter the government. Then they need to be promoted if they want to have higher and more interest. What is the way to do this? That is compete by damaging other people. So in planning economy, how much you can get, much depends on your, I call it, damageability to other people, rather than your productivity uh, to create uh, uh, values. And also, government pricing actually is an instrument for redistribution from uh, some people to other people. State sector doesn't uh, really create uh, wealth, but actually, in most cases, destroy wealth. That is why China, when we moved from that to more the logical market, we created more wealth. Now, I'd like to mention two major aspects of China's reform. One is price liberalization. Second is, uh, 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 second is uh, privatization of the whole economy. Many people would like like to argue that China has not privatized its economy, and that is not right. China has privatized its economy, although we still have a long way to go to complete this process. Now, let me say a few words about the price reform. Before 1985, government forecasts how to adjust prices according to uh, administrative uh, rules. So they think government have uh, capability to do this. But actually, that was not, uh, not right. You know, according to Hayek, you know, all information of right prices were distributed among many people. Nobody can collect all information necessary to, write, uh, to set prices right. But after 1985, this think, way of thinking changed. That is, China switched from administrative uh, uh, fixing prices to liberalize prices through what we call the dual track system. I, I'm honored uh, because my paper, 1984, was the first paper to propose a uh, formal dual track price uh, approach. That later was accepted by, uh, by government. So that changed the way of thinking of uh, uh, price reform. By 1992, uh, most product prices have been liberalized. I show you a uh, uh, few figures. This is a, 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 a price change of retail uh, sector, retail sales. You know, 1978, almost 100% prices set by government. Uh, after uh, 1992, uh, more than 90% were liberalized. And all other prices similar. Like uh, this is uh, agricultural products, and yeah, this is uh, uh, produced goods. So you can see that from 1992, uh, most of the uh, 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 product prices 
were really liberalized. That is uh, 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 because China took very different uh, uh, approach to liberalize price. Second, I'd like to mention ownership change. Uh, before 1992, 1992 is a very uh, a turning year for China's reform. Before 1992, actually, government just tried to improve efficiency of uh, uh, SOEs. Uh, certainly, at the same time, also introduced some non-SOE, particularly like TVE, also some uh, private sector. But after 1992, way of thinking in state sector reform also changed because government realized there's no way to improve efficiency of SOEs unless we really privatize it. Yeah, that is uh, why I call this, uh, I call the privatization of uh, existing state sector. Uh, you know, why switch this? Actually, I think it's uh, some reason which uh, I uh, let me show this uh, uh, some picture. You can see, like, uh, after, uh, uh, this is uh, output and uh, value ended of the state sector in total GDP. You know, after 1993, actually, non private sector uh, 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 cut more than uh, what the state sector count. And, uh, uh, this is the employees. Uh, you know, uh, actually, after 1990s, state sector's employees was quite stable. But after 1997, uh, state sector employees uh, declined very dramatically. And uh, I also uh, say this. There's a, uh, yeah, I saw it's uh, 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 employment, that's absolute number. And particularly, I like to mention, as uh, is uh, like 1998, just uh, in that year, nearly 20 uh, million state employees were made redundant uh, by what we call the restructuring of uh, state sector. Uh, what is the logic of this change in way of uh, thinking how to reform SOE? Simply speaking, that is the state sector really lost its competitiveness when it faced uh, other uh, uh, competitions from other sectors, joint venture, non-SOEs. Also, cross-regional competition became very intensified by that time. That all made the state sector's survival became a problem. I can show that is, uh, uh, this figure show that is uh, like 1992, the total profit of state industry was less than total loss of state industry. So for many uh, uh, sectors, a state company couldn't survive. That is why government was forced to privatize the state sector, uh, in particular that's a small uh, state sector. And also, greatly, they also began to privatize the big state sector by listing in stock exchange. Now, I also like to mention one very important dimension, that's entrepreneurship. When we look at the economy, which is helpful, which is not helpful, that's one indicator is what's the most talented people doing in this economy. 
they work with government or they work with business. And planning economy, most talented people in urban China working with government. Those talented people in rural, they couldn't go to uh, government, though they, they work in countryside, but they couldn't do business. After the reform, this changed, and more and more entrepreneurs emerged, uh, first from rural and second uh, from uh, urban. So this means most talented people switched from value distribution to value creation. That is why we have more and more uh, new products and new uh, wealth. I identified in this book three types of entrepreneurs. First, I call it peasant background entrepreneurs that emerged in the 1980s. Second was uh, uh, bureaucratic background entrepreneurs that emerged the second uh, 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 decade of reform, particularly after the uh, 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 2 event and Deng Xiaoping's visit in South. When Deng Xiaoping uh, 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 visited South, he gave a speech which really argued for more liberalization of activity, uh, economic activities. A third group is also returned as engineering background entrepreneurs. That came in around the uh, uh, turning of the century. At uh, 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 that time, you know, the web and uh, internet bubble uh, occurred everywhere. And I also use uh, statistics to show this. It's really, if I, I use that, it's the top uh, 200 richest entrepreneurs in China. Now, I uh, grouped into three. Uh, first group that is from 1978 to 1987. That's the majority really came from peasants and or uh, people who had no job that time. Second group from 1988 to 1997. Uh, uh, 1988, you know, China was first legalized private enterprises. That's the really majority came from, uh, nearly 72% came from uh, government or state sector. Uh, those people uh, stepped uh, uh, or left the state sector and government and start up their business. A third group is not many people, they're nine uh, 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 people, but still five came from overseas, uh, including uh, started uh, in America. Those people started their uh, uh, business. In my book, I gave uh, uh, three representatives, the first generation like uh, Lu Guanqiu, who uh, you know? Who's uh, commonly here American? They called Wan Xian, and also uh, have been very successful. Yesterday I visited that company. Uh, second is actually my classmate, university classmate called Feng Long, who uh, who is the founder of uh, Wan Tong Group. Uh, third one is uh, uh, Li Ye Hong, a founder of Baidu, who started in America. Then he went back to China to uh, 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 set up uh, uh, his Baidu. So uh, these three group entrepreneurs, you know, uh, successively, you know, uh, 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 developed the Chinese economy from manufacturing to real estate and finance sector and to high-tech uh, industry. And this is show that the whole Peking University students choose their job 
after graduates. You know, before uh, 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 1990s, majority got a job in government. After the 1990s, you know, majority got a job in business. That is a very important historical change in China. In Chinese history, government was so open. The most talented people were attracted to government. Now it is a change. What lessons we can draw from China's reform? I just gave a several arguments. First is the market the most powerful in creating value and wealth. A second is market economy cannot be designed top-down, but evolves through spontaneous forces through liberalization. That is, if you give people freedom to do business, market will come. Not something like uh, uh, government uh, top-down design what kind of market we should have. Actually, the reason we need market just because we cannot design anything centrally. I also think the marketization is a serif. It's more like guided by invisible hand. That is a really different forces. Uh, people pursue their own happiness. Then they create this marketization in China. I also like uh, think uh, emphasize that ideas of market are very very important. Like the particular top leaders' idea, whether they believe market or not believe, it will play very important role in reform and leadership, and also important. And I like to uh, uh, analyze the two schools during this reform, particularly last decades. There are the two schools I identified. One called the China Model School, second called the Reform Feeling School. Reform Feeling School argues that China has accumulated so many problems. Why we have so many problems, including corruption, income gap, regional uh, disparity, pollution? That's because Deng Xiaoping and Hitler colleagues implemented marketization reform. So we need to refer, uh, uh, reverse this process. That was particularly 2004-2005. Actually, that affected government uh, policy. Other school, market model school, a China model school, which argues why we have been so successful. That's because China has not taken so-called Washington consensus. And China uses its own uniqueness of reform approach, particularly China has a very strong state sector, and China has a very strong government intervention and government policy, including uh, industry policy. I think these both are wrong, uh, totally wrong. Uh, China's success actually comes from that government intervention, less and less. State sector becomes smaller and smaller, rather than other way around. Also, China still have so many social problems. That's because the government is still too big. State sector still too dominant. So that is, means the logic of robbery in China still very powerful. Why we have so many corruption? That's because the government control so many resources. When you make your, uh, uh, try to make your profit, you do not necessarily to create value for consumers. If you have a good relation with the government, you can still be rich. So that is, I, I call it the coexistence co of uh, logical, uh, the logical market and uh, the logic of uh, robbery in China. China really faces, I think, a 
new challenge is how to transfer new growth model. Really, the past three decades, Chinese entrepreneurs mainly did, I call it, abstract activity. Like they discover this equilibrium, uh, buy at low price, sell at high price. Then they make money. But these opportunities are diminishing. Chinese entrepreneurs must switch from abstract to innovation. But the innovation is more sensitive to institutional arrangement, particularly for, uh, to rule of law. There are a lot of hurdles to this transition, particularly state secretary is still too big, uh, account for, GDP, uh, uh, for nearly 40% of GDP. I hope government will reduce this to like 10% rather than like today's 40%. Protection of property rights is still too, too weak. The economy is still over-regulated. Government policy, uh, uh, industry policy, is still too powerful. Uh, I know some even American professors, uh, scholars, admire Chinese industry policy. I like to tell you that no any single industry policy has been successful in China. So do not admire China's industry policy. And also, corruption is very pervasive. And how to solve this problem? I think China needs further reform. That is uh, 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 really how to complete this transition from the logic of robbery of a planned economy to the logic of a market. We need more fundamental reform, particularly uh, not just economic reform, also political reform. For political reform, I think first we need to build up a rule of law society. Without rule of law society, entrepreneurs wouldn't be confident, uh, particularly if they want to do in innovation. That will take a long time. Now, the future stability are very important. Security of their intellectual property rights are very important. In further uh, long run, I think uh, uh, we cannot have real market economy without uh, political uh, democracy. So that is all political reform is important. Okay, I stop here. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, it's really quite astonishing if you think about it. Um, Professor Zhang's from the world's largest communist country, and he's coming to speak at the largest libertarian think tank in the world, telling us about the free market. And uh, I wanted to actually give a little bit of background. I, I guess I, I, I figured he's so famous that everybody knows him, but um, I forgot to uh, give a little bit more background, so I'm going to take a second to do that before introducing our next speaker. Uh, Wei Ying Zhang is the Sinar Moss Chair, Professor of Economics at Peking University's National School of Development. And from 1997 to 2014, he was Professor of Economics at the Guanghua School of Management at Peking University. Before, and uh, before that, he was professor of economics uh, at the China Center for Economic Research, uh, which he helped co-found. And uh, our, our old friend, uh, Justin Yufu Lin, uh, uh, was at the founding of that institute uh, as well. Um, 
Early in his career, from 1984 to 1990, he was a research fellow at the Economic System Reform Institute of China, a very, re, uh, very important institute under the State Commission of Restructuring the Economic System. Uh, he has served as dean and executive associate dean at the Guanghua School of Management, and from 2002 to 2013, he was assistant president of Peking University, of course, one of the most prestigious uh, universities in China. Uh, Professor Zhang is a member of the editorial committee of the Economic Research Journal, and he's associate editor of the Journal of Restructuring Finance. He's also the chief economist of the China Entrepreneurs Forum. Uh, in 2003, he was named Reform Star by China Reform, which is a nice title. And in 2013, he was named, quote, the most influential economist of the year. Uh, he's a prolific author. And uh, I can't go through all his publications, but I will mention some of the other books he's written, including Prices, The Market and Entrepreneurship, 30 Years of Chinese Reform, Game Theory and Information Economics, and The Theory of the Firm and Chinese Enterprise Reform. His insightful and provocative opinions about China's reform have been widely reported both in China and the international press, including in the Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, and New York Times. And, in fact, the Wall Street Journal had a very nice interview with Professor Zhang. Uh, when was that, about uh, two years ago or, or so? And uh, Professor Zhang holds a PhD in economics from Oxford University. And uh, he doesn't have much of a British accent, but. <laughs> uh, so now we go on to uh, our next speaker, David Dollar, who we're very honored to have with us today as well. Uh, David is a friend, and he's a, the senior, a senior fellow with the Foreign Policy and Global Economy and Development Program in the John L. Thornton China Center at the Brookings Institution, where he is a leading expert on China's economy and U.S.-China economic relations. He's just not an armchair economist. Uh, from 2009 to 2013, he was the U.S. Sec uh, Treasury Secretary, or Treasury's economic and financial emissary to China and also facilitated the annual strategic and economic dialogue. David worked at the World Bank for 20 years. Uh, from 2004 to 2009, he was country director for China and Mongolia. And from 1995 to 2004, he worked in the World Bank's research department. Uh, prior to joining the World Bank, he taught economics at UCLA and spent a semester in Beijing teaching at the Graduate School of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. He's written extensively on economic reform in China, globalization, and economic growth. Uh, David holds a PhD in economics from New York University, and he received a bachelor's degree in Chinese history and language from Dartmouth College. It's a pleasure to welcome David. Thank you, Jim. It's really a great pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of Professor Zhang's work. He's an old friend, and I'm very happy to be a commentator on the logic of the market, but mostly I'm going to be an advocate. Uh, this is a very rich book. Uh, it's a great resource on China's economic reform, so I really uh, am very happy that Cato is publishing an English version of it. I encourage you all to read it. Since I largely agree with it, let me, let me uh, try to make things a little bit interesting. I, I really want to make three comments. The first one is just to endorse one of the most important arguments made in the book, which Professor Zhang just touched on, but I, but, I, but I hope I can add a little bit of weight to that. You know, Professor Zhang mentioned a number of different you know, schools of thinking in China. One of them he referred to as the reform failure school, that 
you know, despite the economic growth and improvement in people's lives, the problems with environment, inequality, et cetera, means reform is a failure. Frankly, in the West, this is not taken very seriously. Nobody I know looks at China and thinks of the reform as a failure. So let me just put that one aside. So I want to focus on the other school he talked about is what's called the China Model School, uh, which you might think of in the West. We sometimes refer to this as Beijing Consensus. The point here is China has been extremely successful in terms of growth and poverty reduction over the last 30 years. If you look at China today, I would argue it's a very complicated hybrid. There's certainly a dynamic private sector. There's a lot of market activity, and Professor Zhang talked about that eloquently. But there's also still that big state enterprise sector that he talked about. There's a lot of government intervention. This is a system where the government owns the big banks and allocates capital. And you can't look at this and call this a real free market system. So that leads to, to me to fundamentally two different hypotheses about why China has done so well. You know, and the China model hypothesis is that China's done so well pre precisely because it is this hybrid. It's the state intervention and the state enterprises that make China successful. And then the alternative hypothesis, which Professor Zhang supports, is that no, you know, China started out 30 years ago as a planned economy, extremely poor, extremely low productivity, and it's taken enough steps toward a market economy, enough progress with private property rights and marketization that it's gotten very good results from those changes from a planned economy to a more market-oriented economy. Now, I tend to agree with Professor Zhang, and I think one of the rich things in the book is he provides some nice evidence of, of just this kind of, of evidence to support this kind of argumentation. And, and in the interest of time, I'll just pull out one example. There's a nice chapter on state enterprise reform. It emphasizes that a lot of small enterprises, local enterprises, were privatized in the era of Zhu Rongji. But then for big enterprises, they have not really privatized them. They've done what you might call partial privatization. For a lot of the big enterprises, they've done you know, initial public offerings in the market. But they've actually sold a pretty small share to private citizens, and the vast majority of equity is held by the state, and the managers are appointed by the organization department of the Communist Party, and you know, it's hard for me to see those big state enterprises as really privatized in any meaningful sense. Now, what I like about the chapter is it talks about how that change was enough to get some short-run efficiency gains, so the state sector is not a net loss maker, you know, it's a net profit maker, so there's, a, there's an improvement in, in productivity and profits. But there's a lot of different micro evidence that state enterprises are less productive and less profitable than comparable private enterprises in China. So what they've done is taken it a step toward more efficiency, but clearly those enterprises are a drag on the economy when you look at the micro data about their productivity and efficiency. And he's, he's got a nice way of thinking about it, that, that the incentives are there for whoever the manager is, is to do their best job in the short run, and that you know, eliminates some of the worst inefficiencies. But then, frankly, can we expect the Communist Party organization department to pick the best entrepreneurs to run what are now, frankly, some of the biggest companies in the world? And I, you know, then the evidence is they're not very productive or profitable, so I think the evidence is pretty clear on that. So that's really an important part of the argumentation, and, and it's so important that I just actually like to read one of the important concluding messages that I take away from the book. 
right? So Professor Zhang writes, China's reforms over the past 30 years have been a huge success. However, however, over the past few years, reform has stagnated or even relapsed. Whether or not high economic growth in the future is sustainable will be determined to a large degree by whether or not we can get back to the path of market reform. Now you can see those two hypotheses I mentioned are so important for thinking about the future, because if you think the success is the result of this hybrid model, well then frankly there's no strong impetus to reform the hybrid model. If you think the success is the result of taking some important steps toward marketization, then logical sequences of reform is to continue with marketization. Now the second point I want to introduce to the conversation, and I hadn't thought about it before, but it does follow nicely from part of that quote I just read. You know, Professor Zhang, myself, many people feel that during the last 10 years, particularly the 10 years of uh, Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao uh, leadership, re you know, reform really stagnated, marketization really stagnated. Um, most of this was written before Xi Jinping and new leadership, leadership took power a couple years ago. Uh, so second comment I want to make is that if you look at the third plenum resolution and other documents that have come out of this new leadership, some of it reads very nicely as if it were drafted by Professor Zhang himself, because a lot of that third plenum resolution talks about the importance of making the market the driving force in the economy. It talks about a lot of specific reforms, such as financial liberalization, opening up the service sectors that are relatively closed in China, et cetera. However, having gotten that nice rhetoric a little bit more than a year ago, my perception is China, this new leadership, is not moving very fast on, on economic reform. Uh, you know, one concrete example, uh, the book emphasizes the importance of privatizing banks because banks play such an important role in corporate governance. But the four big state-owned banks in China fit very much into the model I mentioned a few moments ago. Just a tiny fraction of shares have been sold on the stock market, and these are basically state-owned banks that play the dominant role in allocating China, capital in China. And I haven't really seen any action or heard anything about privatizing those big banks. So my, my second comment, I can actually segue into a question when we get to question and answer to one question I'd like to ask Professor Zhang, is how he sees the reform program you know, uh, coming out of the third plenum, and what's the status of the reform program now? Are you satisfied that China's getting back on the market reform path as you advocate, uh, or do you feel that, that progress is, is slow? So, I, so I'd like to hear from you about that. Um, now, the third comment I want to make is, you know, I think for a Chinese intellectual, it's very forthright uh, how he talks about the importance of political reform, political liberalization, in arguing that an advanced market economy has to be underpinned by democratic political institutions. So I agree with Professor Zhang about this. There are plenty of historical examples of authoritarian countries you know, that have made the initial steps of market reform and gone from low income to middle income. But there are no historical examples of authoritarian countries that have made it to high income. You know, and my interpretation of this is when you get to middle income and you've gotten a lot of the easy gains from catch-up, you know, you're moving into a level of development where you have to rely more on your own innovation and productivity growth, and it's hard to generate the innovation and productivity growth uh, without underlying civil liberties such as freedom of speech, 
you know, free media, uh, freedom of association. I think all, a lot of those civil liberties relate very naturally to the market economy. That's, that's a, a common idea, but as I said, if you look around among low-income countries, historically we can find quite a few examples of authoritarian countries that have grown very well based on market principles. But as I see it, it's when you get to middle income, uh, beyond middle income, we can't really find historical examples of, of, of countries that uh, continue on the market path without underlying open political institutions. So I think that that's an important issue for China. Uh, toward the end of the book, Professor Zhang writes that in China, there's no open climate to discuss political reform. You know, I, I basically agree with that assessment. Uh, new leadership came in, and as I said, their, their documents suggest an orientation toward further market reform, economic reform, uh, but clearly this new leadership has not been pursuing political reform. Uh, if anything, the, the political environment has become more closed uh, in China over the last few years. So this, this last point is really just a comment that we don't see any progress on that agenda of political openness. And there's still time, uh, but it's gonna be very important to have more political openness uh, in my view and, and according to Professor Zhang's book, uh, if China's really gonna be able to continue and reach the kind of advanced market economy situation, which historically has really been the, the foundation for wealth creation that takes you up to the high income status. So let me just close by saying how much I enjoyed reading the book and having the opportunity to, to, to comment. And as I said, my, my one question for you is, I'd like to hear some assessment of the current uh, economic reform program and how you see it uh, relating to your ideas or not relating to your ideas. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Our next and final speaker will be Xia Liang. He's a visiting fellow at the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, and we very much appreciate having him here at Cato. Prior to joining Cato, uh, Shah was a professor in the Department of Economics at uh, Peking University, where he had taught since 2000. He was dismissed from Peking University in October 2013 because of his outspoken criticism of the Communist Party and his advocacy of democracy and human rights. Now, that's not the uh, story that we hear from the officials, but uh, that seems to be the correct story. He has been a visiting scholar at Stanford University, UCLA, Berkeley, and Wellesley College. And he's among the original signatories of Charter 08, calling for basic freedoms, constitutional democracy, and respect for human rights. He's helped found the Cathay Institute of Public Affairs in China, and he holds a PhD in economics from Fudan University in Shanghai. That's actually where Cato had our 1988 conference. Uh, he's very well known for his work on problems with corruption in China and the lack of open criticism and the need for a free market for ideas. And this, he distinguishes carefully between having a rule of law as opposed to a rule of men. So uh, I looked forward to his remarks today. Thank you very much, Jim. Uh, I'm very glad and honored to have the, this opportunity uh, to uh, welcome my long friend, longtime friend and colleague, Wei Ying Zhang. Um, he has been teaching in business school 
while I was uh, I, I taught in uh, in Department of Economics, School of Economics, for a long time. Um, I think the weighing is uh, considered uh, one of the most uh, lead, one of the most influential economists in China, not only because uh, he's uh, one of the most cited economists, but also is he's one of the most controversial economists in China in many public issues. Um, I think he's an economist with conscience, with logic, and also with courage. Uh, by saying logic, you could find in his books and articles, there's a lot of things emphasized on logic. The logic of university, the logic of market, the logic of China's reform, and so on and so forth. Uh, I noticed that uh, in his uh, preface to the English version, uh, he emphasized some possibilities. There's the six ifs. If you uh, read the English preface, it says, if China opened up medical market earlier, allowing non-government capital to freely enter instead of their maintaining monopoly state-of-state-owned hospitals, would not be so difficult and expensive to see a doctor. If non-government schools could open freely, China's education quality would not be as poor as it is. If China could establish the absolute authority of a constitution and the law, putting government power below the law, there would not be as many cases of barbaric relocation as there are. If the farmers truly held the right of land ownership, there would not be as many instances of unfair expropriation of farmland. If starting a business was the equal rights of every person, instead of there being a privilege bestowed on a group of people by government examinations and approvals, cronyism would not be as common as it is. If citizens had the right to vote and freedom of the press, Government corruption would not be as unrestrained as it is today. So I, I couldn't agree on this more, because those things are the truth of the Chinese society. Uh, while reading the book, the English version, actually I read the Chinese version several years ago, uh, it reminds me many, almost every stage or phases of China's reform and development in the past 36 years. Because Wei Ying is one of the most influential advocators during this process. In 1983, while he was only a 24-year student, he uh, contributed an article in the newspaper to justify for money. At that time, it's a dangerous thing to challenge Marxism, to challenge the traditional concept. Because at that time, people, they say they work for the socialism. They are not working for the money. But John, at that time, he justified the money. It's a very efficient, uh, effective motive for people to work hard. So I'm sure uh, Professor John would like uh, Professor Dollar here. <laughs> <laughs> I think the person, the, for human being, you have the natural right 
to defend yourself with pursuing the justification of pursuing money or capital, all the freedoms to pursue your property rights. So at that time, he was criticized severely because of the publication of this article. And he could hardly graduate from that university. And so he was lucky. At that, term, at that time, it's, uh, uh, relative speaking, is better than time being. I mean, at that time, there's a lot of uh, senior economics scholars encouraged him, supported him, and tried to defend him. So he's lucky. And I think uh, he's one of the person uh, one of the persons that uh, experienced all those uh, critical uh, phases in China during the past 35 or 36 years. <clears throat> I think he's the one also, uh, also one of the fighters to defend uh, the market mechanism. Uh, Maybe it's not a big thing, a big issue in Western world. Every people knows the market is essential. But in China, people think that the plan, planned economy or the power of the government is the most important thing. So at that time, it is hard for a scholar to persuade the other people to believe the market itself works. A market itself makes fortunes. So if some people, I think the majority of people in China still believe that uh, the economic achievements made during the past 36 years were attributed to the Communist Party and the government. While I think the intellectuals or some of the population would believe it's all created by uh, the citizens themselves, given some certain extent of the freedom of uh, freedom of uh, like uh, property rights, a freedom development to choose, then you have plenty of time of opportunity to develop yourself well. So uh, I think the Chinese uh, nationality, it doesn't mean uh, we have the long history of the 5,000 years, it, but it doesn't mean we have the, the kind of fate that we can never develop as our will as our will uh, permits. Like uh, some people say, since we were born in China, that means we were born Marxist and socialist. We have no choice. We cannot choose another institution. So that's a very sad thing, you know. That's why some people eventually decide to immigrate. If you give them that opportunity, if you give them opportunity to experiment, have the experiment, or maybe just for part of the regions that could be uh, expecting like that, that'd be much more, uh, I think, beneficial. There's a lot of things uh, in uh, Wei Ying spoke. Uh, he mentioned uh, like uh, uh, pricing reform. I think there's kind of contingent uh, policy issues at, at that time. That's an important issue at that time. But basically, it's not, uh, not the fundamentals in a, a market economy country. So if the, we have a better institution, if we have the rule of law, that would not be that big issue. So 
But also it's fortunate because of that contribution, John was admitted uh, with uh, some contribution on the dual track of pricing system. And he also discussed on uh, state ownership. And he gave the definition of the, what is uh, market socialism. Market socialism, by his saying, is public ownership plus market organism, mechanism. Uh, well, it sounds good definition. I mean, uh, it's quite logic. But I still have some doubts. Because in China, is, is, it, is it real, the public ownership in China? It's not real. Actually, it's uh, the ownership of the, uh, some of the group, uh, interest groups. Some of the people, maybe big wigs, they have the power. They have the resolution to decide. So uh, I think the public ownership is more ideal, idealistic than realistic. But anyway, I think it's, uh, it's, it could be a good conclusion under the conditions that China's political system and legal system remain the same. And also, Professor Zhang emphasized on the importance of the res residual claim, because residual claim is something actually happened and actually matters in China in the context. And I'm very interested in his uh, thing about good policy and bad policy. Uh, so he gave the definition what is a good policy and what is a bad policy. <clears throat> uh, in a very simple and non-adorned Truth, it says, to increase people's livelihood, increasing welfare to build a harmonious society, increasing employment opportunities, protecting the disadvantaged, controlling consumer prices and housing prices, protecting the ecosystem, and reducing pollution. Those are good policies. Uh, well, I, I agree most of the part. Um, yeah, I think. The, in China, there's always the old saying that the policy is good, but when Im implementing or enforcing, it is bad. So people judge only by the results. If the result is bad, then the people say, oh, that's bad policy. But some people say, oh, the policy is always good, and central government always good, but only those grassroots the cutters, they did not do the right thing. I can believe that. I mean, if the, in the whole country, for the long time, the policy cannot be implemented properly, that means it's a bad policy. So you can't explain that the Communist Party's policy is always good, but the results are always bad. So I quite agree with uh, the definition or conclusion. The policies that limit free competition are not good policies. And then he gave the reason why the people have the bad policies. The two broad reasons are ignorance and interests. I think the latter one is more important. In China, I think the 
90% of the bad policy would attribute to interest because the in different interest groups, they have their own goals. So the goals will conflict. That's many points I want to comment, but time won't allow me. So I would only say some, some big issues. Here on page 109, it says the biggest failure of the Chinese education is shamelessness. I quite agree on that. Because nowadays, the Chinese university could not teach students to be an honest man. But I think the majority of Chinese parents, if affordable, they would like to send their children to study in US, Britain, and other Western countries. So people do not have the trust in Chinese higher education system. Not because they are not qualified teachers, but the ideological control is so serious. Uh, and it's getting worse and worse in recent situations. Like Xi Jinping made some speech, important speech in recent dates, and emphasized on psychological, uh, ideological control on the higher education. <clears throat> and also, Professor Zhang emphasized incentive changes in China. Uh, I think it's quite true. In early 1990s, when Deng Xiaoping gave the more liberalization on the market reform and individuals have the more opportunity to uh, develop and have the free choices in some way, to some extent. But in some parts, I have the arguments with uh, Wei Ying. Uh, on page 366, he mentioned that first China's political reform should be gradual. Okay. Uh, we cannot use shock therapy. Uh, that's compared with the uh, uh, former Soviet Union. Uh, I think that this article might be uh, on the, based on the earlier uh, judgments. And it's, it says, second, the rule of law must be established first, which requires an independent judiciary. His uh, argument is without a relative independent judicial system, Democratic politics is not possible. I would say that just the opposite. If there's no political reform, there's no constitution and rule of law, there will not be an independent judicial system. Okay, I don't have much time, so I just say I have some agreements and disagreements with Wei Ying, but it's a fantastic book. I recommend to all the readers. Thank you. Thank you, Ling Liang. Um, we're going to have about uh, 25 minutes or so for Q&A. And um, I think we could start with uh, David's question. And in connection with David's question about the prospects for real reform, especially in the financial sector, I'd also like to uh, get Professor Zhang's uh, opinion, just brief opinion, of um, Nick Lardy's recent book on markets over Mao, where he seemed to argue that there wasn't uh, much of a fall off after the last regime in China with respect to moving towards a more market, uh, non-state oriented uh, system. 
whereas uh, Professor John argues that there was basically a lost decade. Uh, so you might want to comment on, on that just uh, because uh, Nick Lardy is an important uh, China specialist in his book. Uh, I've read his book. It's a pretty compelling uh, book. Okay, well, why don't we start? And uh, maybe you could address those uh, briefly, and then uh, I'll call on the audience uh, for questions. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, uh, David. First, for your question, I think uh, I'm a little bit uh, optimistic about economic reform near future. Uh, particularly, I think uh, uh, top leaders uh, like Li Keqiang, and he has, uh, I think, clear idea about economic reform. Government already made this uh, decision. And uh, his deregulation and openness of financial sector has already, I think, uh, uh, started. And I also think it's uh, uh, because the government faces a very big challenge uh, for economic uh, growth. And uh, according to Li Keqiang, uh, what he said in Davos, uh, the World Economic Forum, that China cannot rely on that it's just macro stimulus policy. We must rely on those really institutional reform. I, I think they have done something. And also, state sector cannot uh, be sustained uh, for so big, so long. Uh, the reason is that also is, you know, you know today's state sector become very negative assets in mind of many people. Is related to corruption and other social issues. So that also give, uh, give a big pressure for government to change this. But the key issue is uh, uh, whether this uh, really, I think it's uh, already said that is, uh, uh, if government do not like to really conduct reform to con constrain government power, you know, put the government and rule of law, whether this kind of economic reform would be sustainable. Even they change that, you know, it would be easy to reverse that, like uh, under uh, Hong Jintao's regime. Yeah, let's come back to Nikladi's uh, 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 argument. I think Nikladi, I, I, I think he has uh, compared the whole 30 years, almost. He didn't very much really forecast on Hong Jintao's 10 decade. When I talk about the 10 decades, or, or I, I call it lost decade in terms of economic reform, it's not just in terms of uh, shares of GDP, but mainly I think some uh, mindset. For example, like both uh, 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 Zhejiang province and Guangdong province. You know, Zhejiang province was dominated by, uh, by private enterprises. Uh, Guangdong province was dominated by uh, uh, foreign investment. But uh, during the last decade, they, both these provinces always try to uh, attract central government or the big enterprises to make investment. Gave a lot of favorable policies to this. So that, that is one indicator. Also, you find many private sectors' property right, uh, uh, property actually was confiscated you know, without you know, proper legal uh, judgment. So that is, uh, you know, all put together, uh, I think many people agree with me that decade was uh, rarely reform regression. Uh, if you'll just raise your hand, and when you uh, ask a question, keep it brief and try to direct it to uh, one of the speakers. 
And also, uh, please give us your uh, name and affiliation. How about right down here? Hi, Swami Ayer of the Cato Institute. Uh, there is this notion of a middle income trap that countries can rise very fast uh, without any democratic uh, values particularly into middle income. To get beyond that, they would have to have various changes, which are not just perhaps economic reforms, but political reforms. So I would like to ask from you, has, I mean, given the fact that the current leadership does not seem to be emphasizing the political reform at all, does this constitute a major stumbling block in China moving from middle income to higher income status? And secondly, I'd, I mean, David Dollar could perhaps help out. David, how many countries are there that have gone from middle income to high income without being democracies? Your girlfriend? Well, I'll go first because that's pretty simple. You know, I would say there are no examples of countries that have gone from middle income to high income without democratic institutions. And, but let me quickly add what might be the exception. You know, if you look in the data, you can find oil-rich states that have high GDP per capita and, and do not have open political institutions. I'm putting the oil states aside. They just happen to be sitting on a huge amount of oil. If you put the oil states aside, first of all, there aren't that many countries that have made it to high income. It's primarily Western Europe, the United States, you know, Canada, um, Japan. And then the, to me, really interesting cases of the recent decades are both Taiwan and South Korea. Taiwan's a province, not a country. Uh, <laughs> Taiwan and South Korea, at about the stage of development where China is now, they began a very steady process of improving civil liberties and political freedom. So they, you know, they were authoritarian up to about this stage of development, and then they had very dramatic liberalization. Singapore is a slight exception. You know, if you look at these different measures like Freedom House, civil liberties measures, Singapore is not considered authoritarian. They're just right in the middle. Uh, but it's unusual for a country in the middle of that index to make it to high income. Singapore is the only one, but I would say it's not. It's not an authoritarian country. Uh, I think it's, uh, uh, for China, very important is building really solid uh, institution. And uh, if China really do not uh, conduct political reform to build uh, rule of law society, uh, even, uh, I mean, the democratic uh, uh, democratization could be later come. That's my argument, different from uh, Professor Xia. Uh, I, I think there will be big, yeah, big trouble, and uh, particularly when you know these middle class rich people come, you know their demand not just for material life. So that will be means you know political system is not easy to be sustainable. You know, if without a sustainable political uh, environment, I think I do not think economic achievement could be maintained. about right here? we get you next. Thank you very much, Professor Zhang. I really appreciate your presentations, uh, especially your idea of idea market. So I have two ideas. The first, I'm from a World Wildlife Fund. Our logo is Panda. So I want to ask you about the property right of Panda issue. So who owns Panda? What's the price of Panda? So Sorry, uh, property right what? Panda, Chinese national animal, panda. <laughs> oh, oh. So that's our organization logo. 
<laughs> so World Wildlife Fund. Oh. That's the first question. The second question, so China, I thought that China is not only a unique country in the world who follows the logic of market, compared with many other students like uh, India, uh, Vietnam, Brazil, compared with even the teachers of logic of market like uh, US, the UK, and many other countries, Japan and Korea. But why is a student, it seems, has developed faster than teachers and other students? How can you explain, explain, uh, how can you explain the China phenomena if not a China school? Thank you very much. It is uh, certainly a different country with uh, you know, some different uh, conditions. Although, you know, it's, I, I mean, market uh, uh, logic is necessary, not sufficient for economy uh, to develop if you have any other institutional constraint. And, uh, 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 but my argument is very simple. Why China could achieve so successful? This is a you know, really late-come advantage. The gap between China and the West is so big. At the beginning of reform, making any product uh, could be profitable. You know, as, it, as long as you are brief enough, you set up a factory, a sale, uh, produce and sell goods. You, you know, you could uh, make a uh, huge money. So, but you know, today this uh, uh, gap between China and West is shrinking, now become more and more uh, 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 difficult. They are also, I do not think it's, uh, some people said China is a uh, miracle. You know. Probably yes, but I think the most important miracle uh, in human history probably that American. You know, from 1865, you know, Civil War, to 1900, that was exactly with 35 years. American changed from agriculture economy to number one industry economy, and also during this process, American achieved, uh, you know, uh, 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 created a lot of new technology, new products. Yeah, that is really a miracle, all created by, uh, by market. Okay, right down the front here. James Sang, a question for Professor Zhang. Um, you use phrases like step-by-step step and you're associated with uh, dual track and the like. And all of these reflect what I like to call adiabatic changes or gra continuous gradual changes. On the other hand, as Professor Zhao pointed out, in, we are looking at political changes coming forward, looking forward. Do you, apropos his comment and his challenge to you, do you have any comments about um, whether these political changes can be done in an adiabatic fashion? Uh, uh, first, let me say why I, uh, I think uh, economic change should be very, very gradual. Basic uh, uh, reasons our human beings are very ignorant. You know, many things we couldn't understand. You know, we can only let your situation is, uh, reveal itself. Then we find what we should do next. If we like to have, you know, one-stop uh, implementation reform, that means we know almost everything. Yeah, so that is a gradual reform is very important. And uh, uh, for political reform, I think certainly we can learn from the West. A lot of things uh, are, are, are we can learn, but I still I think it's a, yeah should be a gradual process. I particularly like to emphasize, and it's uh, different from Professor Xia. I argue that rule of law should come first. 
Actually, the general uh, process like marketization or economic li uh, liberalization should come before political democratization. The second level is uh, within political reform, rule of law should come before democratization, political democratization. Really, uh, you know, it's a uh, uh, democratic, uh, we, we do not, we cannot rely on democracy to solve every problem. You know, democracy is some kind of a political institution which can only solve very uh, minimal problem. That's uh, public uh, issues, not private issues. So first, we need to have a system and which really people follow rules. Uh, really people have their responsibility. That is only those, I, I argue in my book, that middle class is uh, uh, very, very important. If people do not follow rule, if, if top leaders do not follow rule, and if, suppose we, we have an election, you won, I lost. But I will not move my office. You could come in, you know. Who could judge that? You say, oh, we have a court. But when court made decisions, I do not follow. So that would be a civil war, you know. And also, if we look at human history, most of the successful reform, uh, democratization, all follow this uh, 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 sequence. Like uh, uh, British, you know, first they had the uh, rule of law, which almost completed in uh, 1688. Then they started ref uh, 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 democratization in 1832. Uh, 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 until 19, uh, like 1928, that was uh, nearly 100 years, they completed this process. Uh, I propose or predict that China may be, uh, uh, for China, it may take, uh, I think, three to four decades to, ref uh, to, to have a really rule of law and democratic uh, uh, system. We cannot be... Uh, 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 to hire, you know. I mean, uh, patience is very, very important for our human beings really make stable and sustainable uh, progress. I think that's a very important point, uh, that limited government, which limits the power of government, comes first, democracy comes later. And that's a point that uh, Peter Bauer, a famous development economist, uh, like to make all the time, and a lot of people don't seem to understand the, the difference. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd like uh, Xia to uh, just respond briefly to this, this conversation, and then go way in the back uh, on the left-hand side there f to take that question. But let, let's have... Uh, yeah, just a very quick response. Um, I have the no disagreement on the rule of law uh, first. My question is, it's impossible to have the rule of law first, given the dictatorship of CCP. Uh, if there's a no fundamental institutional change, there is a no independent judicial system. There is no rule of law at all. I guess when we think China will have rule of law or system, that means really China is ready to you know, have a long-term neo-political system. You know, if, uh, so, but that does not mean explicitly announce that. You know, otherwise, uh, you know, nobody, uh, no top leader would like to have a rule of law system. Uh, certainly, rule of law system cannot be sustained without eventual democratization. That's also my argument. 
Let me give you an example like uh, Hong Kong has a rule of law system. For instance, nowadays, CCP call themselves as a rule of law. Do you believe that? Oh, that is another story. <laughs> yeah, that is not, I call the, yeah. That is, uh, I call this, you know, in China, not just China, you know, America. There are a lot of things I call the corruption of language. Corruption of language. You know, you, you, uh, you use some vocabulary to say very different things. You defend something which is really undefensible. Yeah, that is something we need to change. Mm. But uh, let me give an argument about Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong had a rule of law system without uh, uh, democracy for a long time. That's the reason is, uh, you know, Hong Kong was a colonial of uh, Britain, you know. Now after Hong Kong returned to China, let it really create a new demand for democracy. Otherwise, uh, rule of law would be sustained. So that in this sense, I agree with you. What is different between me and you? That is the sequence. You know, which should come first? Okay, let's go way in the back now. You've got that one. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, thank you, uh, Professor Young. I have uh, two quick questions to ask you. Number one, in your presentation, you said that uh, good economy requires good leadership. From the scale to one, from one to nine, how do you create this current leadership of China? About two minutes ago, you said that in 30 or 40 years, we will have a rule of law and democracy and so on in China. How can we do it quicker? Can we do it quicker? Thank you very much, sir. Uh, for your second question, it's, it's difficult to do that quicker. You know? So as I argued, we must be patient. You know, many historical change uh, didn't achieve its goal just because people were too impatient. They just tried to achieve that result overnight. Uh, this including China's uh, 100 years ago revolution, Xinhai Geming. And uh, for your first question, I think what I emphasize is that during this transition, uh, we transition from uh, old system to new system. We need strong leaders. Uh, that does not mean uh, we always need something, you know, is, uh, 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 very strong leaders. Uh, I, I even I think uh, American, you build this system, real and very strong missionary leaders like Washington, Jefferson, and others. Uh, otherwise, you couldn't have such system. So that is a normal situation. Should be different from a traditional uh, uh, situation. So that argue. China really needs strong leadership during this transition. And uh, 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 also, I'd like to emphasize that my argument is for strong leadership. It's different from uh, like uh, authoritarian. Uh, uh, i like to uh, uh, take an example like uh, I think Mrs. Thatcher, uh, Ronald Reagan. You know, they were both strong leaders. But they, uh, I think American and British were not also, uh, authoritarian at that time. I should note that Professor Zhang has a very important article coming out uh, in the next Cato Journal on this issue of uh, leadership. He calls for good, strong leadership plus good ideas. And he, he looks at the current uh, leaders in China and tries to talk a little bit about the future as well. I think we have time for one more question. So let's take it way over here, uh, way in the back there.
I'll make it short so the guy in front of me can make it quick too. Uh, does it help or harm when the U.S. politicians give the speeches about the importance of democracy and that we should, uh, we should temper our economic and trade relations and so on when China goes down a, quote, or it has an anti-democratic -tend anti tendency or something? I think this is, uh, 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 for China, I think really, uh, when American politicians talk about this, it's really too sensitive. And so best way that I think for both countries is really promote uh, uh, free trade and uh, f a free exchange of ideas is very important. So you know, it's the uh, 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 products, uh, service, import, export, also and ideas. And uh, I hope the future will be more academic exchange. Actually, in another book, I argued for uh, uh, ideas market. That is uh, very important. Uh, you know, we need to give free, uh, 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 freedom to people to freely express their ideas. Then we know, you know what is right, what is wrong. And otherwise, uh, will be uh, I think I come back to your question. It would be difficult to have real politi uh, political reform. Why we did uh, successfully economic reform? Really, was that time we had uh, some less or more and some kind of uh, idea market that the economists could give different ideas how to reform. So these different ideas, you know, compete with each other. Then government, uh, you know, select. Uh, I'll find some ideas, you know, good for reform. That, uh, my example is the dual check uh, price system. I proposed that. At that time, you know, majority of people, dominant idea was that is uh, government had ability to fix the uh, prices. But my argument is no, you have no such ability to do that. Only way to have right prices is to liberalize control. You know, then you know, government uh, accepted this idea, then the whole price reform approach changed. Well, I'd like to thank Professor Zhang and our panelists uh, for a very uh, fruitful and interesting discussion. I'd also like to make note that I'd like to thank the Chicago Council uh, on Global Affairs for sponsoring uh, Professor Zhang's uh, trip. And I encourage you all to get a copy of the book. It's outside, and I'm sure Professor Zhang will be glad to autograph it for you. Uh, you can uh, now proceed to the luncheon on the second floor, and uh, thanks again for coming today. <laughs>